Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Lime Ninja Radio. This is lesson number two of our four-part masterclass on brain health. And uh, before we go any further, can you explain the new format? Yes, I'm very excited about our new format. It's really to remedy what I'm calling the spaghetti method of teaching. And that's what we were doing before, the spaghetti method of teaching. So we would take all our podcasts and just throw them up on the internet. And maybe you'd come by and find something that was interested and make a meal of it. And maybe you wouldn't. But what we're doing now is we're putting all these podcasts together to make a cohesive masterclass. You're going to get four topics on brain health that's really going to drive the knowledge in deep. Yeah. And as a reminder, the first lesson was an introduction to what Borrelia does to the brain with psychiatrist Robert Bransfield. That was a great lesson. He taught us so much about what happens to the brain. If you haven't listened to lesson one and you like to do things in order, go to www.limeninja.com forward slash brain underscore health. So that's LimeNinja.com forward slash brain health. And then in between brain and health, there's an underscore, a little underlying character there. And that'll get you there. While you're there, you can listen to lesson number one and also sign up for the masterclass. Give us your email and we'll, you'll, we will send you emails about when the new episodes come online so you won't miss anything. And at the end, we're going to send you a very special resource guide, Twilight Zone. I remember all those crazy, they'd have the funny hats on their head and the wires coming out and the weird music, oh, yeah. the 50s science background sound effects. But that's no longer the case. Neurofeedback now is a highly sophisticated way of retraining the brain and retraining the brain without a lot of struggle. It's absolutely fascinating. Aurora, please tell us about Lesson 2's expert, Dr. Jolene Ross. Dr. Jolene Ross is a licensed psychologist and received a PhD in counseling psychology from the Boston College in 1985. Dr. Ross studied quantitative EEG analysis and its application to neurofeedback with K.H. Wong, Ph.D., who was associated with Harvard's Epilepsy and Applied Neurophysiology Unit at Children's Hospital Medical Center of Boston. She is the founder and director of Advanced Neurotherapy, a wellness clinic that utilizes behavioral medicine and applications such as quantitative EEG analysis and neurofeedback. She works with individuals and families challenged with neurocognitive, neuroemotional, and neurodevelopmental disorders. Thank you, Aurora. And here is lesson two. I am very happy to meet you. Well, likewise. I was reading your website, and I did not realize your daughter had Lyme disease. Everyone in my family, including me, uh, has. I don't happen to think there's any had Lyme disease, yeah. except for my husband, who has anaplasmosis and is struggling with it as we speak. Oh, I'm so sorry. One of my daughters um, has MS, which now that she's finally listening to me, it turns out is Lyme and three co-infections. Yeah. At least that's what her doctor, her Lyme doctor thinks. Oh, th- at least that's- she's finally getting in the right direction. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. But she's a pretty sick, sick puppy. Yeah. Well, it gets so, in there and just blows up. Oh, and it's amazing, depending on what system it gets, 
it can really do some horrible things. Yeah, and what what's your take on that? Why do you think it goes in different people goes after different systems? First of all, I think that there's a genetic weakness. Mm-hmm. It is said that stress is like a heavy blanket that is placed over the body and the weaker areas will show the strain. Okay. So I think for instance I was just talking to someone who said that her daughter is having, you know, neurological stuff and her husband, actually it was her son having neurological stuff, and her husband had a history of um, epilepsy when he was a child. Hmm. So there's a likelihood that there's a genetic propensity um, for a weakness neurologically. And um, so that's, you know, I think that's part of what facilitates where Lyme goes initially, but ultimately Lyme will go to various places. It'll just keep invading. But then there's, you know, the longer you have it, the more severe it can get. I was just doing some reading, um, and it turns out that late-stage Lyme can actually manifest as pulmonary fibrosis, rapidly moving pulmonary fibrosis, which requires... A, um, requires lung transplants. Yeah. Once that happens, you got five years, that's all. Right. Yeah, if you can't breathe, it's kind of game over, isn't it? Well, the problem is once they replace your lungs, you're now on large amounts of rejection, anti-rejection medication. Oh, right. Ultimately, right. cancer's going to get you. Right. Cancer, pneumonia, both. I mean, that's the way it is. Right. Um, so lung kills. And the, you know, the scuttle button has been, well, don't worry, you can't die of it. <laughs> I've seen plenty of people, both young people and adults, who've been hospitalized um, in psych units as a result of it. And yeah. I've seen young people who are cutting. Yes. And it's lying. Interesting. Interesting. I just interviewed Dr. Bransfield. Mm-hmm. Have you run across him? A psychiatrist, he's, um, former he's a psychiatrist president of in New Jersey. And yes, he's exactly. A former yeah. president of of ILADS. Yes. 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 Actually, um, I was at a conference a few years ago in Rhode Island, where he was um, one of the main speakers. Yeah. So his. His introduction to Lyme was through a patient who was not improving psychiatrically, and he yeah. got he got all interested in it. Thank goodness. Good for him. Now, well, that that's how we got involved in Lyme. It was sort of a a, a dual prong thing here. Um, one is I I'm a neurofeedback specialist, so my job is correcting brain anomalies. Um, and I, we've had, you know, we started to see some people that were not holding their results, which, you know, didn't happen here. Uh. And ultimately, it turned out that this one young woman was diagnosed with Lyme, and she was like the person who would come here, do better. Two days later, she's lost it. Yes, and that it just didn't happen. Um, and then I was attending naturopathic conferences every year. And um, they did a half a day on Lyme. Uh, Dr. Horowitz actually did that. And I came back, and I had a patient that was sent to me by a rheumatologist, and I went through the list of Lyme symptoms, and he 
had pretty much all check, of them. Check, check, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And I said, you've got Lyme. He said, no, I don't. <laughs> and he went on to tell me the names of all of the infectious disease specialists he had seen mm-hmm. and the various hospitals he'd been to around here, Medical Mecca. Um, we finally arranged for him to get an Igenics Lyme test. Oh, good. And he got a call from the head of the company because he was so awful. Wow. He was in such bad shape. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that because I do want to talk about neurofeedback, but before we go there, you mentioned just a minute ago that with the Lyme patients, the treatments didn't hold, the neurofeedback treatments or sessions didn't hold. Why do you think that is? Um, first of all, gratefully, that's not the case with all Lyme patients by any means. Okay, good. However... I, um, one of my concerns with neurofeedback with undiagnosed Lyme is that we may well um, correct the problem, but it's not going to hold because we fix and the Lyme eats. So what do you the mean? The brain is positively what? delicious. Oh, okay. And Lyme certainly has an affinity for the central nervous system. Yes, it does. So your concern is that somebody will come with symptoms, not be diagnosed with Lyme, they have some improvement, and the Lyme stays undiagnosed. Is that correct? That's one of my concerns, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Our mission is corrective care mm-hmm. that is durable. Right. Correct the problem, it stays corrected. And the other thing is I don't want Lyme compromising our results. Well, Lyme disease humbles all practitioners, I think. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's Absolutely. Been, it's been my it experience. Is, the way I put it is it is a formidable opponent. Yes, it is. It has the longest DNA chain of any bacteria on the planet. That makes it more adaptable than any other bacteria on the planet. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about neurofeedback. What what is it? <laughs> I mean, First I know all, some. Uh, you know, we got brains, and brains have brain waves. But yeah, that's yeah. nice. I know. <laughs> well, what it is, first of all, is effective brain training. Brain training is, you know. So there's in, uh, hang on. There, is there ineffective brain training? Yeah, the research comparing neurofeedback to, for instance, computerized brain training systems mm-hmm. is that not only does neurofeedback have a more, more robust effect, but on follow-up, neurofeedback holds that effect. Okay. So you can't just buy an app from the app store and train your brain? Not effectively. I always say that's like doing your own brain surgery. <laughs> you know, you might as well open your mouth and do your own dentistry. Um, there are certain principles that you need to understand in terms of the way the brain works in order to effectively correct neurological functioning. And it's really important, and we know that based on the research as well, that we do a good brain assessment. Let's find out from a bioelectrical perspective, brain waves, what's your brain doing? What are the challenges that your brain is having? What is it that's not working? 
the way you'd like it to be working? Or what is it that we need to do to move you into peak performance that we can do that'll make your brain work even better? We need to look. And so here's something interesting because I came across neurofeedback, you know, over the years and got interested in it recently. And I've tried to track down different sources on the web and they're unlike some other therapies and even herbal medicine, there doesn't, it's, it's really vague. I'm having trouble like finding out who does the training and what the training worth anything. So where, where did you get trained and how does somebody know whether, you know, if they were interested in neurofeedback, they, the person doing it wasn't just somebody who bought a machine. I think that's a great question. And I think personally that that's one of the challenges in my field. Um, I think that one of the most important things with neurofeedback is to really understand the brain and know how to do a good comprehensive EEG assessment called a quantitative EEG. It's electronic. Um, my husband and I actually studied with Dr. Barry Sturman, who was the person who started the field, who, who actually did the research and figured out, number one, that it's possible to train the brain to change its brain waves, and number two, a purely accidental, wonderfully serendipitous story that there was utility to doing that, mm-hmm. that it actually could change the way an organism functioned, and it happened to be epilepsy. Um, so his system is certainly the most comprehensive system. There's no other systems that take a look at um, act, what's called active states. So we collect data. Most people, if they do an EEG at all, they'll collect data with eyes closed, maybe if you're lucky with eyes open as well. We collect data reading, math, and doing a few other things. Reading is where things break down because Interesting. that's when you're using really using your brain. You're not using your brain with your eyes closed or <laughs> with your eyes open looking at something. So you, you're not really getting the full information of what, you know, what, what happens when the brain actually is working, when it's functioning, when it's processing information, when it's using the various systems, the visual system, the auditory system, the language components, memory, storage, retrieval, higher-order thinking, drawing conclusions. That's all part of reading. So reading really for the brain is one of the one of the good tests. So if somebody's not testing you yeah. reading, they're not getting a good sense of what's going on it. as your brain's yeah. attempting to function. Right. Yeah. And that really has a lot, a, a very large bearing on the treatment protocols that we developed. If we were to develop treatment protocols only on eyes closed and eyes open, they would be very different. Right. And they would not be anywhere near as robust hmm. and effective. So do you see certain patterns of dysregulation in Lyme patients, or is it more what that person brings before they have Lyme? Do you, do you have a sense of that? It's a, it's a combination. Um, one of the things that we often see, there are two things that we often see with Lyme, and I always say they're consistent with but not diagnostic of. Right. Um, one thing is is high, what we call alpha, which is 8 to 12, give or take, um, cycles per second. And we'll see that throughout the brain, and that is associated with vision. And when the eyes are closed, 
that's what we call visual blocking. So visual cortex, which is in the back of the head, goes on idle. When that happens, we get big, huge brain waves in this what's called dominant frequency, which is alpha, give or take. When you open your eyes, that should get smaller. Mm-hmm. With Lyme, it doesn't. Uh. So that's one thing. The person cannot suppress this alpha-ish rhythm. So does that mean... And it's excessive. Does that mean that they're struggling to process visual cues? Or... Because you're saying when your eyes close, these waves get bigger. With the eyes open in a normal person, they get smaller. So a small mean it's active? I don't quite understand. That's correct. Okay. The smaller the brain waves, particularly in the slower brain wave bands, the more active and engaged okay. and effective and efficient the brain is in those locations. So is that, you know, I had a Lyme patient on my table the other day, and f- many, many times she would just kind of stare off into space. You know. So what's probably happening, which is not just a Lyme symptom, it's mm-hmm. also a head injury symptom. Lyme behaves a lot like brain injury. <sighs> And so one of the things that can happen in brain injury from all sorts of sources mm-hmm. is the brain is going along doing its brainwave thing, and all of a sudden, brainwaves get really big throughout cortex. And then that'll last a little bit, and it goes back down again. Mm-hmm. That can last typically anywhere from a half a second to a second and a half, sometimes two seconds. I've seen it longer. That doesn't sound like a very long period of time. Well, but yeah. when you have it, you're having reduced processing. So you can be reading a book, get to the bottom of the page, and not know what you read. Right, exactly. But the other thing that happens is there's an emptying of the working memory buffer. So whatever you've been holding in your working memory prior to that event, that's gone too. Oh, nice. So it's just like re. A small reboot. You just exactly. lose everything. You could lose everything or close to everything. That you've just Gratefully, been working on. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to happen when you're driving because that's what we call procedural memory. Right. But you may well not remember what you passed. Right. So that's the thing where you walk into the room and you don't remember why, why you walked in there. Yes. Is that well, correct? Well, that's actually close a enough? working memory issue. Okay. <laughs> Those bursts can most certainly interfere with working memory. Okay. But Lyme can reduce working memory in and of itself, whether or not you're having the birth. Okay. Wow. Another thing we see in Lyme. say, that's number one. That's enough. Oh, but there's you. more. Yeah. Well, there's attention, there's focus, there's executive functions. I mean, I could go on and on. Well, let's, let's um, go through a couple of them. Okay. Well, let's talk for one second about another signature we see in Lyme, and then we'll go on to how it affects the brain okay. from a functional perspective. Um, another parameter that we look at besides size of brain waves in particular locations and the degree to which the brain is able to get itself in gear, kind of like a car going into, you know, first gear, second gear, third gear, mm-hmm. um, is the degree to which the brain locations are able to coordinate with each other right. across cortex. And one of the things we see is we see reductions in coordination in the periphery of the brain. It appears that Lyme really likes the periphery. It likes the prefrontal area, the forehead, and the frontal area, which is the front part, you know, like just a, just into your hairline. Mm-hmm. It likes the temporal areas, which are above the ears, just above and in front of the ears, and just 
above and behind the ears, and it likes the very back of the head. So the forehead and prefrontal area are all the executive functions, which we'll talk about in a minute. Temporal areas and anterior and posterior temporal is about language. It's about word finding. Um, it's about language production and linear thinking. Um, and then we've got the visual centers and, and memory. And then we've got the visual centers in the back of the brain. So Lyme can disrupt the function of the eyes because vision is actually a brain thing. Yeah, of course. Now, do you think this is damage from inflammatory processes caused by the Lyme? Do you think the Lyme's invading the brain many times? What Do you think it's all of the above? I think it can be all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, central nervous system inflammation, we're now starting to find, coming out of research, that that's a major factor, for instance, yeah. not only in aging and, and so on and so forth, but also in mental illness. So Lyme can cause depression and anxiety and mood disorders. It can look like bipolar disorder. If you have the genetics for bipolar disorder, it'll kick it off and make it flaming. Wow. Um, uh, OCD, mm-hmm. emotional control outbursts, anger, violence, violence to yourself, violence to others, uh, meltdowns, blowouts, all of those sorts of things can be Lyme-related, but certainly can be inflammation-related, whether or not it's Lyme that's causing that. Right. So if you have, like, an inflammatory gut to begin with, and then you get Lyme on top of it, and then you get exposure to mold or what, you're just doomed. That and also Lyme disrupts the immune system. Yeah. Disrupting the immune system will make you sensitive to a lot of foods. It can often make you, usually, make you sensitive to, for instance, gluten and dairy, Mm -hmm. which are long-chain proteins. Um, We know that gluten in particular is pro-inflammatory, so you're probably going to become more sensitive to the pro-inflammatory components of gluten. Yeah. And it can, it, it can, it appears to be, and I don't know that there's research on this, but it appears to be one of the factors that is contributing to an increase in um, celiac. I don't think it's the only factor by any means, but we certainly see people that have celiac who don't seem to have that genetically. Right. They have all the symptoms, but not the genetics. And right. So something else is driving that. Okay, where were we? Executive functions? Yep. So executive functions are things like working memory, impulsivity, initiation, which is starting things, maintaining things, completion of things, attention and focus, of course, emotional control, Hmm. planning, organizing, self-monitoring, self-awareness, Social interest, social competence, anger, processing speed. In Chinese medicine, this is called the liver. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's so great. Well, this this is all in the front part of the brain. Yeah. The front part of the brain runs the show. It is the last to develop phylogenetically. 
So as I say, Mama Nature isn't done with it yet. Right. It's the last to develop as we develop as humans. It is certainly being interfered with in terms of its development with this screen time that people are so oh, heavily into. Yeah. Um, and it's the most sensitive, so Lyme loves it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, does the executive functions continue to develop into our early 20s? Am I right on that, or is, am I thinking of something else? It actually can continue to develop long after that. Long that's after. That's what wisdom is all about. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful. So how does neurofeedback adjust, improve, I hate to say fix, but I'll say fix, the functioning here? Um. First of all, it fixes all of this and some things we haven't even talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, the way neurofeedback works is we, of course, you know, any neurofeedback practitioner starts with an intake, like what's the history, what's going on. When I do mine, I am also listening for Lyme symptoms and will arrange to have a person Lyme tested if um, I'm suspicious. We're very fortunate we coordinate with a wonderful physician, Lyme literate physician. I was going to ask, does, does Massachusetts allow you to do that or you have to refer out? I refer out yeah. because the person I work with isn't in Massachusetts. <laughs> All righty then, we'll keep that name secret. <laughs> in any case, um, uh so I'm listening for that. So it starts with an intake. The mm-hmm. next thing that happens is that EEG brain map. Okay. With eyes closed, eyes open, reading map, a few other things. Um, listening, a listening record, active states, that sort of thing. We then process and interpret that information, and then there's a report of findings. And I show people pictures and graphs of what, you know, I've found and um, relate that specifically to their presenting problems. I then tell them what we're going to teach their brain to do differently. And then we set up a graph of targets so that we've rated what it is they want to see change. Mm-hmm. So we've got baseline. Then they do, they start their neurofeedback sessions. They sit in a comfortable chair. We have recliners here. We attach sensors to their heads that monitor the electrical output. How many we zoom, sensors? Uh, we use four active, so in other words, we're training four locations simultaneously, mm-hmm. and we do not input electricity for neurofeedback. Okay. As I always say, this is safe. I get into this as a mom. <laughs> it had to be safe. It had to work, and it had to be corrective care, or I wasn't interested. Okay, great. Um, so the, in, the electrical output from the brain, most, not all, but most of the body produces electricity. Right. And that electricity has meaning, and it gives us information about how those various body processes and body organs are functioning. And so we're monitoring this electrical output. It goes to the computer screen, and we set the parameters to reward a mix of brain waves that, based on that EEG brain map and based on the presenting problems, we expect is going to improve functioning. For every quarter of a second that the brain is making better brain waves, there's a reward. The, the reward is in the form of a sound and a simultaneous change on the computer screen. And that's enough to make the brain happy? Yeah. Your brain's a cheap date. It is. We're rewarding. <laughs> it's great. We're rewarding better brain waves, and it's immediate, and that's why it works as reward. 
So the person doesn't have to like exert any effort. They don't have to monitor their breathing. They just sit there. This and we have some people who like to watch their brain ma- waves. Okay. And we have it set up so that there's feedback so they know when their brain waves are doing better and so forth. And that intention is a positive thing. It is necessary for people to know that their job is to produce a sound, a sound and that right. change on the computer screen. Once they know that, that's all they need to know. Other than that, it can run under the radar. So they're sitting there, like maybe in the, and let me ask this question first. So as somebody goes through sessions, like they've done 20 sessions, do they get better at it? Quote unquote better? Is it, does it happen Um, faster? Yes, except they won't know it because this is a shaping task. So what usually happens Uh, is brainwaves are, let's say, too big. And so we set the parameters because brainwaves cycle. So we'll set it just slightly smaller than the biggest brainwave. Okay. So there are times when those brainwaves are within that range. Yep. They get a reward. Brain gets really good at it. So now we make so you, the, the... Yeah, so it's a moving target. Brain more, so we make it smaller yeah. and smaller and smaller. So it's right. sort of like working out, you know, and you're adding weights. Yes. So okay. you're not doing more reps and you're not doing faster but you're getting stronger. You're getting stronger. Okay, that makes total sense. I I find this fascinating. I love the idea that the brain gets so bored that it'll do the task you said before, which in this case is change the brain waves, and that you can passively train the brain. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Oh, yes, it is brilliant. And what's interesting is I started this about 19 years ago, when we first started this, we could just set people up and kids and all of that, and it was all fine. And then we started getting kids adopted out of Russia that mm. came from these uh, orphanages where yeah. there was really minimal, minimal stimulation. Yeah. And the brains do not develop. Brains develop, it's a demand system. And if there isn't demand, areas will not develop. And so these were kids, among other things, that couldn't sit still. And what we found, because we're smart enough to listen to parents, is if we put them in front of a video screen, they sat very still. Right. So over time, we found that we had more and more people that, you know, couldn't sit still, or then came screen time, um, and people started getting bored. So Hmm. we have people watch a video, and the video screen is right next to the computer monitor. So the little kids that come here think we put buttons on their heads and they watch videos. (laughs) That's what they think. Um, But the brain, the mind, whatever, you know, the eyes are seeing Mm -hmm. the monitor out of the corner of their eye because they're watching the the, um, video. And the brain is processing that auditory information even if a person is totally unaware in their aware mind. Isn't that amazing? So, and the reason is it's contingent. And what do you so, mean by contingent? B.F. Skinner over at Harvard, he studied the laws of behavior. And the first law of behavior is any behavior that's followed by a positive event, hmm. the probability of it happening again goes up. Goes up. So, the, so good brainwave behavior is followed immediately by the positive event of a sound and a simultaneous change on the computer screen. Yeah, that reminds me. I'm One of the things I do in the spring is I coach 
I'm an assistant coach with women's lacrosse up at Hamilton College. And we've had some really good years, and we've had some really bad years. And one of the things we are always working on is how do you give feedback, especially in the middle of a drill? Because by the time you're giving somebody feedback, the the event that we're trying to correct or improve on is is gone by. So it's, you know, there's some training now they're using clickers in gymnastics, like with doll clickers. I was just going to bring up clicker training. Yeah, and we've we've thought about that. We haven't figured out how to implement it yet. Um, I actually studied with the woman that developed the clicker. Did you really? Yeah, because it's, so it's the such way a, it's done. Uh, tell me, is that if you've got a particular, and you can have multiple clickers. That's the other thing, and um, you want to make them have slightly different sounds, so you muffle them. You put one piece of tape on for one person and two or three for another, so the sound is slightly different. People will learn to recognize their own clicker. Um, <laughs> So it doesn't have to be just one. But you'll have a particular athlete, and you're trying to get them to do a particular thing. If they do it a little bit better, the moment, that moment, you click. Right. So when they've got good form and diving, good form, it, you know, you're, you're spinning the right way. You've got your body posture just right, click. And so that becomes the reward. They start to associate that with reward, and then it becomes visceral. And again, what you've got is any behavior that's followed by a positive event, and this becomes a positive event, the likelihood of it happening again goes up. Thank you. It's extraordinary. Now, neurofeedback is wonderful for athletic performance. Uh, It increases focus. (laughs) It increases um, physical coordination. And it cuts down on that compulsive thinking and worrying and and anxiety and um, over-arousal we're, that can happen. We're going to put my team on a bus and take them out to see you. <laughs> well, it's really cool stuff. We're, we, we'll have to figure out a way to make it practical for you guys, um, which uh, is doable. But it's extraordinary um, how effective it can be. And, it you know, we can really help with the head cases because those are people that haven't you know, it, it, this stuff is happening automatically for them, and yes. you can't control it. Yes. We we have very highly literate, highly analytical young yep. ladies, and to get them to just play. Uh, well, that's it. And neurofeedback can teach them how to get out of their heads. Out of, that, out of their heads, right, because they, they, yeah. they don't know how to do it. They understand well, what we're talking about. They just can't yeah. do it. Yeah. Well, part of it is it's sort of an OCD thing. But the rest of it is that there's a moment when they ought to be in their left brain Mm -hmm. when they're strategizing. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to those critical moments, to the moments of play, they should be in their right brain. In their right brain. Yeah, I don't think we switch. That's funny you bring that up. Hmm. Yeah. So before I go down that path, because it's a passion of mine, let's bring this back around to Lyme. So what, when in a Lyme person's life should they be coming for neurofeedback? It's like, what, what part of their treatment strategy does you, do you help with? What can, ex, what can they expect to see improve? It depends on how severe their Lyme is. Mm-hmm. For people whose Lyme <laughs> symptoms are fairly mild, mm-hmm. then it makes sense for them to be doing neurofeedback simultaneously to their Lyme treatment. Okay. Because they're going to work synergistically, there's going to be a confluence, 
and it's all going to come together in improvement. When people are very sick, I recommend that they do Lyme treatment first and that they really get some health going, and then we can correct the negative effects that happened to their brain. And so help improve brain fog, like yes. these executive functions, retraining the yes. brain to think again, get the visual yes. cortex going again, that sort of thing. Yep. Memory, emotional control, word finding is often a problem. Yeah. Word salad, I heard somebody say once. Yes. I have word salad. Yeah. It's a great phrase. Yeah, well, they, they're looking for a word. Either they can't find it or they get something else. Yes. Or they get a piece or they start stammering. Yes. We can speed up the processing because that's another thing that Lyme really loves to do is slow things down. Really? Yeah. So All the executive functions and the moods. What part? Mood on, disorder. I'm, I'm fascinated by what part of the brain controls the tempo at which you think? That's more of a diffuse thing. Okay. And what we typically see is very big brain waves, you know, excessively large okay. brain waves throughout. So, okay, Th that makes sense. And then you were because talking about emotional control. Yeah. Yeah. The whole anger and right, and the Lyme rage stuff. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and the mood disorder and the irritability. You know the general crabbiness. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it reported. Yeah. No. And motivation. <sighs> you know the motivation is a combination of three things. You've got to have a reasonable amount of health. Mm -hmm. Then it's what's in it for me. Right. And then it's neurology. Okay. So if you've got a reasonable amount of health, if there's something in it for you, but your neurology won't come along for the ride, right. then reward all the rewards in the world won't do it. That makes total sense. Is there any connection between improving brain function and the immune system? Are there studies out there with neurofeedback in the immune system? Um, I have heard of them. I have not studied them. Mm -hmm. um, but I have certainly heard of them. I know years and years and years ago they were looking at that those parameters in, um, in France. There was some research going on there. Um, and I think one of the issues is a blood flow issue okay? because what can happen is disruptions in blood flow. And if you've got disruptions in blood flow, then you're not going to have the effective clearing of toxins. Yeah. And then things and build then up, right. And then you've got all that inflammation yeah. and all of that sort of thing. Right. We're back to inflammation again. Yeah. yeah. But then, then you've got, for instance, an MS. Mm -hmm. We know that, you know, Lyme is demyelinating. Yeah. Um, so that's the definition of multiple sclerosis. Actually, the definition of multiple sclerosis is multiple enhanced sites on MRI over time and place. Um, but inflammation is a piece of that puzzle. And it's interesting, exercising the neurons, which neurofeedback does, can prevent them from breaking which prevents the progress of um, MS. That can cut down on the possibility of you getting into that end stage. So just like exercising a muscle, exercising a neuron calls yeah. the body to send resources to that area to shore it up yeah, or make it stronger. Yeah, very mm -hmm. interesting. 
Well, Dr. Ross, you've been delightful and very generous with your time. Is there anything else you'd like to, that I haven't touched on that it's important for people to know? Um, I think one of, for me, one of the most important things is that if you've got Lyme, it's going to have a high probability, not a guarantee, of affecting your brain's functioning. And that's correctable. That's good news. I think so. I think it's <laughs> extremely good news. And then the last part, there's actually a second part to that question, is how can people get hold of you and get in touch with you? Um, What's the my best? Phone, the phone number here is 781-444-9115. Our website is retrainyourbrain.com. We're located in Needham, right next to the Needham Library. And we've worked really hard to make ourselves accessible because we get people from multiple states that come here. Particularly, I get Lyme patients from multiple states, not just people that have other issues. Um, and so we're open Tuesday through Saturday, and we're open a couple of evenings a week so that we, we know we have to be accessible. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's absolutely been a pleasure, and I look forward to working with you. Uh, likewise. We'll talk Great. soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, I learned a lot. It's so encouraging to know that the damage left behind by the Borrelia bacteria in the brain, that it can be fixed even. Yes, neurofeedback is a powerful, powerful tool and one that I think is underutilized in the Lyme community. In fact, I'm going to be working with Dr. Ross to bring it to my clinic here in Clinton. I'm very, very excited about it. Mm -hmm. And that leads us perfectly into lesson number three. What if your brain fog isn't caused by a Lyme infection? Our guest expert on our next lesson, lesson number three, will teach us the nuts and bolts of determining if your house is toxic with mold. See, mold toxicity can present exactly, exactly like Lyme disease, and it's important to know how to tell the difference because you have to treat them differently. Yep, and you will not want to miss this. No, you won't. And Aurora, one last time, how can people sign up for the masterclass so they don't miss a lesson? All right. If you want to sign up for the masterclass, still go to www.limeninja.com forward slash brain underscore health. Thanks, Aurora, and we'll see you all at lesson number three. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.